It's May 2015, and this month I'm joined by Allison Randall. Welcome to Hacking Culture, featuring in-depth interviews with free software advocates. Hacking Culture is brought to you by Lullabot, and I'm your host, Matthew Tift. Libra Planet is an annual conference for free software enthusiasts. At this year's conference, I met Allison Randall, who currently works at Hewlett-Packard. As we were talking, she said one thing after another that impressed me. Allison is a board member of the Open Source Initiative and at the Perl Foundation. She works on Ubuntu, Debian, Python, Perl, and OpenStack. At various points in the past, she has served as the chief architect of the Parrot Virtual Machine, member of the board of directors for the Python Software Foundation, chair of the Parrot Foundation, open source evangelist at O'Reilly, conference chair at OSCON, technical architect of Ubuntu, and open source advisor at Canonical. She has a wealth of knowledge, and I'm thrilled that she agreed to come on the show. How are you doing today, Allison? Great. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start near the beginning. You've been involved with open source and free software for a long time. Do you remember how you first got involved in the free software community? The funny thing is, I'm not entirely sure I do, but uh, my earliest memories, which may not be my first point of contact, but my earliest memories are of a Linux user group. I was working at a startup. And before the startup, I was primarily a C programmer and the startup was using Perl. So I learned Perl for that. And then the Linux user group was kind of, I don't know, it was, it was, it was a very welcoming place to go to get connected with people. And um, I ended up like teaching Perl classes for the, for the user group as well. Where was the group? Uh, Nashville, Tennessee. So they have a pretty good Linux community there? I do, yeah. Um, as far as I know, it's still going strong. I occasionally see emails flying past from it. So you have more than 25 years experience as a programmer developing games and e-commerce websites and compilers and database replication systems. You've been at this for a while. Yeah, it's actually more than 30 years now, but I don't update that. <laughs> I, I, I don't update that because it, it seems like bragging or something. I really got started programming when I was about eight because my dad was a software developer and taught computer science. And so I've been making software as long as I can remember. Somehow at university, I decided not to study computer science and study linguistics and said, I thought it would actually be kind of boring after studying my dad's classes in, in high school. I'd say my first real professional experience wasn't until after I moved back to the States from Africa and took a job doing software development. I'd been doing it for for link, supporting linguistic research. So are you from Africa? No, I'm, I was born in, in Tennessee, but I did work overseas as a linguist for a number of years before I started working in software development. Do you remember writing your first free software application? I think the first free software project I worked on was like really explicitly publicly contributing was Perl 6. And that was a combination of design work and I also very quickly ended up working on the compiler backend called Parrot. 
I, w- I wouldn't call anything that I did before that really like community free software work. It was more the kind of, you know, little bits of hacking that, that people do. So it sounds like the first time you really got involved in free software development was with the Pearl groups. Yeah, definitely. Well, that sounds like a great place to start. They were they were very welcoming. I know people today sometimes talk about like challenges getting involved in in free software, but honestly, I never I never had any hesitation or discomfort. I don't know a lot about the Pearl community, but I always hear Randall Schwartz talking about it on Floss Weekly. Randall was actually instrumental in pulling me in. He's the one who suggested I go to a Pearl conference the first time. <laughs> As many listeners know, I'm a Drupal developer, and I'm basically a Drupal developer because I work on Drupal and because one day I decided to call myself a Drupal developer. And you are a Debian developer, which is not a term that someone can just start using one day. Debian is often called the grandfather of GNU Linux distributions, and to become a Debian developer, you have to go through a fairly lengthy process that includes finding a mentor. Over the years, I've thought a lot of times about becoming a Debian developer because I love Debian and I've used it on and off for many years. How did you make the leap to becoming a Debian developer? So it was actually connected to my Perl work. I was chief architect of Parrot and we were having some trouble with our Debian packages. So I um, just decided to start helping out a little bit, uh, seeing if I could figure out, you know, the maintain the maintainer of our packages had hadn't had time to work on them. And after about a year or two, I was the one making all the updates to the packages. So they suggested that, that I should apply as a Debian maintainer, which is kind of the first step of becoming an official Debian developer. That was, yeah, a long time ago now. I'm not an official Debian developer in the sense of being able to vote. I haven't actually taken that step. I keep saying I'll get around to it, but I'm always too busy to actually go through the, the final steps of the process. There is a there is a, a, a new stage that they've introduced now called Debian Contributor. And for that, you can just declare, I'm a Debian Contributor. Well, if you don't actually do anything on Debian, people might look at you funny. But essentially, all you have to do is show up and work on bugs or work on conferences or work, work on packages or whatever you can do. Even just being involved in the community and say, I'm a Debian Contributor. And they're very happy to welcome people. How does being a developer in the Debian community compare to, say, being in the Perl community or Ubuntu or in the OpenStack community? I know those are probably very different groups. They are, yeah. They each have interesting aspects to them. So I would say being an Ubuntu developer, which I also am, um, or I'm actually an Ubuntu developer, uh, is more similar to being a Debian developer in the sense that they do have a very structured process. You know, as an Ubuntu developer, you tend to start as an Ubuntu member, which is kind of like Debian contribute contributor, where you just kind of you can do anything, help out at booths, participate in bug work, you know, pretty much anything, and become an Ubuntu member. But then Ubuntu developer, um, you do have to have uh, go through the approval process. OpenStack seems like its own kind of special community as well, because from what I understand, it's quite business focused. I think that's an accurate characterization. 
I, I do think so, yeah. The, the majority of contributors at OpenStack are employed by a company to work on it. Although the interesting thing is that developers have a tendency to shift around companies. There's, there's quite a bit of promotion through sideways motion. The really active OpenStack developers are, they're essentially the same as the community members you would find anywhere. Um, you know, like the Linux kernel community, their total focus is on building the community, building the software, doing what's right for the project. You know, the fact that they happen to employ, be employed by one company or another is kind of a nice side benefit rather than being just someone who is employed off the street and then told you are working on OpenStack tomorrow. You get some of those too, but I've found that, that OpenStack developers become every bit as passionate as, as Debian developers, Ubuntu developers, Linux kernel developers. That's your job then, right? You work for Hewlett Packard and they pay you to work on OpenStack? Yep. I end up doing a lot more strategy work than I, than I thought I might. I guess they kind of found out a couple weeks after I was hired to work as a full-time OpenStack developer that I used to be technical architect of Ubuntu. I basically end up drafting open source strategy for the CTO of HP Cloud quite a lot, which, you know, I, I don't mind. I mean, I enjoy development, but I also kind of have the sense that if I can help HP get their open source strategy right, then I'm empowering a whole lot of open source developers. You know, and if I just sort of sit on the sidelines and focus on my own code, then maybe I might not be able to benefit as many people. So that's a pretty impressive title you just mentioned, the Technical Architect of Ubuntu. What does that entail? Ubuntu is very community focused, so it's not necessarily what you might expect from, uh, you know, a purely internal proprietary project where the technical architect's job is to uh, decide everything that's going to be done and how all of the architecture fits together. A lot of it was more about coordinating between a lot of teams that are both community and, you know, working at Canonical and making sure that, I would say, making sure that the final outcome of the architecture is beneficial to everyone involved. I would say it's a much more community style of technical architecture. It's actually much more similar to what I did as technical architect of Parrot than it would be to, say, technical architect of kind of internal project. You say Ubuntu. Is, is that how you believe it should be pronounced? Because I keep hearing it both ways. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's, it's technically it's a Bantu word. And in Bantu languages like Swahili, it would be Ubuntu. But the Americanized form is Ubuntu. And I tend to, I don't know, even though, you know, I speak Swahili, I know how it should be pronounced authentically. Uh, I tend to have gone with the word as it's often commercially said. I think I just kind of copied it from Mark Shuttleworth. Now that I think about it, I'm not sure. I would almost expect him to say it more in the proper Swahili pronunciation. Ubuntu is a Swahili word? Yeah, I think, well, it is. So a bunch of those languages are related. Um, I think it's he probably got it from South African languages because he's South African. That was a slight divergence, but I was curious about something you said earlier about the OpenStack community. So you were saying that there are developers there that are getting paid by companies, but they're given a fair amount of freedom in terms of what they think is best for OpenStack. Is that how it is for you as well? Yeah, definitely. So it does vary from person to person. It varies from company to company, and it even varies from project to project. 
my development work on on OpenStack, which is primarily in like Oslo and sort of I don't know. I like I like big carry cross system problems, so I tend to get involved in those sorts of level of things, release management type level of things where I can. The time that I spend on development for OpenStack is entirely undirected by HP. They're happy to have me contribute, but it's um, it's more on the level of they just want to see improvements in the project. There are definitely other other teams that are very focused on a specific piece. You know, like you know, their job is to work on Nova which is like the compute. And, you know, that's where they focus all their time and their manager is aware of what they're working on and, you know, has oversight over the bugs or the features that they that they plan to work on uh, for each development cycle. So I'd say it's, it's probably kind of a mixture. That's kind of a pleasant surprise because I guess I've viewed OpenStack as maybe a different sort of community than, say, Debian, since you're in the Debian community. I think people will view Debian as institutionally independent because it gets lots of contributions from people that work at big corporations, but the project itself is seen as beyond the control of any one of them. When you talk about OpenStack, it sounds like there might actually be some similarities then between the two communities. There are, in fact, yeah. I mean, I think, so OpenStack has very carefully over the years sort of, I would say, gardened the corporate involvement. So they have a much heavier corporate involvement, but then they have a large number of players. And those players are each, in a sense, they're, they're kind of negotiating their own desires for outcomes the same way a bunch of individuals do in a project like Debian. And it ends up no one has any dominance over the direction of the project. So it, it actually serves the same purpose of making sure that you don't have unhealthy corporate dominance. Um, and that it, it's almost like evolution, right? So, you know, a company might have something they want, but then they talk to like a bunch of other people, they talk to developers, and, and if no one else agrees with them that this is a good idea, it doesn't happen. They can even like put money behind investing development effort in it. And it's really just a waste of their time if nobody else in the project wants it. Hmm. I think it's actually been quite an interesting learning experience for some of those companies who, you know, maybe they were involved in the Linux kernel in the past. They have experience with that way of doing things and they've come into this and they, you know, I think there may be early on, there were some folks who, who tried to drive in a particular direction and there've been some projects that got pruned, not, not through any like top down, you know, the OpenStack governance like killed off a project. It's not really necessary. It's just, they just sort of die off over time if they don't have enough interest across enough of the people involved in the project. So Debian is a very volunteer-based community, although there are lots of people that get paid to work on it. What kind of volunteers does OpenStack attract? Um, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell the difference between volunteers and people who are employed to work on it, because you may have someone who's employed to work on one piece of it and does a lot of other stuff as a volunteer. Hmm. But Overall, it seems to attract the same sort of mix of people that Debian attracts. A mix of people who are interested in code, a mix of people who are interested in, you know, leadership or, I don't know, sort of more social aspects, building communities, bonds that keep the project alive. And do you think it attracts the same kind of people that we were hanging out with at Libra Planet? <laughs> 
where they're very strongly in favor of free software? Definitely, yes. Not not everyone, but I think what's important is that those people have a voice and do have influence over time. There's been some interesting conversations around uh, the contributor agreement that OpenStack uses. At the moment, it's not very friendly to that sort of more more pure, more passionate free software focus. It's very fascinating then to hear that from your perspective, being part of that community as well as having other communities to compare it to, that you see a lot of similarities and see the same types of people pushing for the same types of things that they feel passionate about with regards to free software. I know very active core developers in OpenStack who used to work for the Free Software Foundation, and they haven't changed their, they haven't changed their philosophy at all. And they are still advocating within OpenStack the same way they would within any community um, and even outside their own communities. From my perspective, not only are they right, but they're actually winning. I've seen some shifts over time. We'll see how the contributor agreement thing works out, but I've seen some shifts over time that are positive from my perspective. So you feel that the, the free software folks are winning? Yeah. I consider myself a free software person. The folks who have a very strong vision for having everything released as free software for taking a position on contributor agreements and licensing that that supports free software. So let, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of your involvement on various free software boards. You are currently on the board of the Open Source Initiative and at the Perl Foundation, which we've mentioned. You've also been on the board of directors at the Python Software Foundation, and you are chair of the Parrot Foundation. How did you make the jump from being a member or a developer in one of these communities to being on a board? Well, like many things in free software, it was sort of a matter of helping where help seemed to be needed. And then gradually over time, that became part of my official responsibility. So for the Pearl Foundation, which was my first board seat, I at the same time I was doing design work for Pearl 6, I also was doing project management for Pearl 6. And sort of that circle of people kind of got used to me giving some direction and guidance and helping provide some structure. One of the people on the Pearl 6 project was also on the board of the Pearl Foundation. And when they started looking for someone to replace the president who was retiring, he suggested that I should uh, step up and apply for the role. So I did, and I was voted in, and um, it was definitely a learning experience first couple of years. Um, but overall, it was a very positive experience. I felt like it was a great way to help the community. Um, and that kind of, I guess it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, that, you know, I have skills to offer that aren't just development. I can do development too. Um, but that sometimes, you know, just, just being willing to stand in a position and, you know, Hold what needs to be held, uh, think about what needs to be thought about can really help a lot of people. I wholeheartedly agree with that. What are your responsibilities in some of these 
positions as a member of the board? And it varies widely. And actually, it has varied widely over the years. I mean, I've been on the board of the Pearl Foundation for over a decade now, almost 15 years. <laughs> so with the Pearl Foundation, you know, I was president for, I think, three or four years. Uh, I did a lot of restructuring, building up communities, committees to handle certain aspects, like giving out grants or guiding certain aspects of the projects that the foundation ran. I, I have a tendency when I'm in a leadership role of training up replacements. So I had a couple of replacements who I thought would be good lined up after me, and I kind of handed off the mantle there. And then I focused on legal things for a few years, like drafting the artistic license. And honestly, I still kind of focus quite a bit on legal things. At this point, I would say my involvement in the Pearl Foundation is more advisory, helping make connections, being a repository of knowledge of the way things happened years ago. Don't tell me you're also a lawyer. <laughs> no, no. I, I did think, after I did the artistic license, I did think about going to law school. I did. And I still end up spending a lot of time on legal stuff. I found that after a day of working on legal code, I would be very grumpy. And after a day of working on <laughs> software code, I would be very happy. So I thought, yeah, maybe I won't go to law school. <laughs> you're able to help out legally, even though you're not a lawyer? What does that mean then to do legal work for a free software foundation when you're not a lawyer? I suppose I would think of it like having a lot of knowledge of mechanics, of like auto mechanics, but not being employed as an auto mechanic. So there are a lot of things you can do for yourself, and then you just make sure to have a professional involved. You know, I'm perfectly happy to draft a legal contract myself. And I will hand it off to a lawyer and get them to edit it and revise it and come back to me and, you know, have a final form and may even have a conversation back and forth with them a few times. So it's, it's not, it's, I, I highly advise against being a rogue agent and just going off on your own and doing like all of your legal work for your foundation or company on your own. Like that's not a good idea. But there's a lot of things that you can do for yourself that actually help the lawyer. Um, because, you know, in, in many cases, in the law, there's, you know, five or six different ways they could do things. And you can kind of help them figure out what works best for your particular community or area of business by kind of getting them started, like seeding their work. And that actually helps them a lot. I suppose that makes some sense that you learned programming, but then you probably had people that helped you get to another level. Somebody said you should apply for a board. You maybe didn't have a resume with lots of board activity at that point, but you figured it out. And it sounds like it might be similar with the legal situation where you've realized I can get this 80% of the way and then make it so the lawyer can do the last 20% and we can save the foundation some money by having the lawyer not have to do as much work. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. I'm a big fan of lifelong learning. Uh, never stop. <laughs> so am I, indeed. So what advice would you give to someone who is curious about serving on a board? Maybe they're a developer now and they think they want to help out in their community. Do you have any general advice that you could suggest that people might use if they were interested in getting on a board somewhere? Yeah, I mean, I so I'd say two things and the first thing is 
being on the board of uh, Free Software Foundation, Open Source Foundation, you should always look at it from a servant perspective. If you're trying to get on a board because you think it's an elite thing to do to give you status and reputation and improve your career or whatever, just stay away. <laughs> just completely get out of it. It's just not what communities need. It may help your career, but it's not going to help. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I've seen a few people who tried to get on boards for that reason, and it didn't benefit the community. It didn't really benefit them either. And I suppose the other thing would be, if you're interested in serving in that way, the most important thing to brush up on is your people skills. It's not just about being able to tell people what to do. In fact, in open source foundations, it almost never is. But it's very much about understanding what people need, really listening to people, understanding what they need, and then helping them find their own way to the best, to the best answer as a community. Wow. That sounds like great advice to me. Let's talk a little bit about one of the boards you're on right now, the OSI. I discovered at Libra Planet that the OSI is somewhat controversial to some people that are free software advocates because they view the OSI as directly challenging the Free Software Foundation. And I'm guessing you would not characterize the OSI as challenging the FSF, but I'm curious, how do you describe the open source initiative? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really important question to ask because I do... I do hear that misperception sometimes, and I think it's important. I think it's important to help people see it in a healthier light. I would say where that misperception comes from is in the very early days, uh, there was a personal rivalry between Richard Stallmond and Eric S. Raymond, and I think that kind of colored the relationship between the two movements to the sense that they they did see themselves as rivals. There are still people who feel that way. I, I won't even try to pretend that there aren't people who still feel that way. But I can say that a vast majority of the people on the board of the OSI today consider ourselves free software advocates. And we don't see a conflict between the two. When I try to explain this, I tend to get people to do a mental 180 degree turn look at things from a different perspective. Around the time that the Free Software Foundation started, the Free Software Movement started, that Richard Stallman had his very first um, encounter with a company trying to lock down Emacs, lock down his code, you know, that he reacted to and said, no, no, you can't do this. It's important to keep in mind that the whole idea of proprietary software, the whole idea of copyright on software was also brand new. The reason the company had such a ham-fisted approach to it is they really had no idea what they were doing either. We can debate and say, well, maybe software should never have been copyrightable in the first place. And I, I would actually probably agree with that statement. But the fact is, <laughs> it is copyrightable now, which made proprietary software possible. All those sort of business models that built around proprietary software. But all those business models around proprietary software are the same age as all the business models built around free software. 
I would say the ones around free software are actually more successful. The World Wide Web, mostly built on free software. In the late 90s, there was a group of people who, who did kind of look at the, the free software movement and think if there was a way, if the, I, I would almost say they were saying, is there something missing? Some people say they started something different, but I actually think of it as an additive. Free software is saying, no, no, like proprietary software is wrong. This is wrong. Do not take my rights. And open source kind of came, came along and said, oh, and you know, by the way, proprietary software really doesn't work. You know, it's, it's not a good collaboration model. It doesn't drive innovation. It, you know, destroys your profits with bizarre legal battles that actually have no benefit to anyone involved. And, you know, there's a better way to do this. So I don't personally see a conflict between free software and open source. I see them as not even two sides of the same coin. I see them as parts of the same overall movement to say, you know, proprietary software is a failed experiment. The OSI used to spend a lot of time evaluating open source licenses and adding them or not to their approved license lists. As I understand it, the OSI now actively discourages new license applications. Do you think it's fair to say then that the OSI is currently in a period of change? Yeah, I would, I would say that. So, I mean, the license proliferation movement started about 10 years ago, about 2005, and we have seen very few new licenses introduced in recent years. And I think that's, that's good. We should have very few new licenses introduced. But, I mean, the world evolves and legal, uh, the, you know, like, case law evolves and legal standards in countries evolve. And I don't expect that the set of licenses we have right now are forever ident going to be identical. Like, I expect there will eventually be a GPL4. It just makes sense. For all the same reasons that it makes sen made sense to have a GPL V3. We'll keep reviewing licenses, but I don't think it will be more than maybe one a year. So one of the transitions I think we're going through is moving from a perception of, well, there's this flood of licenses and we just have to like accept or reject. You know, that's, that's the only vote we can make to more of a focus on quality of licenses. One of the things I really liked about the GPLv3 process was the public review tool and how much community involvement they had in revising the license before they got to the final version. I think every new license should have that. A year is fine. Go through a year of public review and revision and we'll end up with much stronger licenses over the next 20, 30 years if we start doing that now. So that's one of the things that's changing. Another thing that's changing, I would say, is a lot more focus on social programs from the OSI. Uh, one great example of that is OpenHatch, a project that essentially does training for new contributors and helps them get started getting involved. One of the big central themes of open source as it started was around you know, community engagement practices and collaboration practices. And, you know, it's like how to get the best benefit out of free software, how to make the best contribution to free software. 
that right there is probably the most important mission of the OSI in the next 20 years, is really focusing on how do we communicate that message and help as a teacher, as well as just a voting body on, on the open source definition and open source licenses. A goal then of, of encouraging people to get involved in projects across a wide variety of skill ranges, not just developers, not just documentation, but all kinds of things. Some of the things you've mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And to not just consume open source or, you know, kind of contribute in a, in a token way, but I would say to actually understand the free software principles behind it. A lot of people do tend to slide into open source without quite knowing what they're getting into. And that's okay. I mean, one of the one of the things Larry Wall used to talk about was baby steps. That it's fine to come into Perl and take baby steps and not really understand, but if if we're not taking people who just stumble onto open source and helping them understand the principles of free software, we're not really serving them as a community. I really like what you're saying because I don't think these bifurcations and these battles that people like to depict are all that helpful in spreading some of these key ideas that you've been talking about. We are all, for the most part, pushing for very similar ways of making software and relating to other people. We get along. We have people that are involved in Debian and that are involved in OpenStack. These projects contribute to learning and communities. That's a very good direction for the community to be heading. Yeah, I think so too. And that is that is one of the things I worry about actually when I when I worry late at night. Um, <laughs> is I mean I don't know. Do you ever watch Monty Python? There's this whole I think it was in the life of Brian. There's like the people's front of Judea and the Judea people's front, and they're like they're neck and neck at war with each other, and they just can't get along. And and by fighting with each other, they're actually undermining the entire effort. They're not only undermining each other, they're undermining the entire effort. If free software and open source are at battle with each other, we're actually undermining the whole effort against proprietary software. Um, you know, we're spending all this energy focused on a wrong enemy. I do worry about how we come together and keep that momentum forward instead of like just bickering. Another way to get involved in the community and have people talk to each other and argue together and push forward shared ideas is at conferences. You've been involved not only as a developer and a board member and a budding legal scholar, but also as a conference organizer. For example, the Open Source Convention or OSCON, as most people know it, is one of the largest open source conferences in the world, and you used to be one of the organizers. What was it like to help run such a large conference? It was, it was a great experience. I, I really loved um, working for O'Reilly and working on OSCON. It was like, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You know, you just had the latest and greatest open source free software innovations just like flooding your inbox all day, every day. You know, you had all these great conversations with people about 
what was what was happening right now and then you kind of like try to condense that you know try to condense a whole year worth of contacts and conversations and news and developments and try to convince like condense that all down into three days of sessions and make sure that the people coming had that same sort of experience of open source community of coming together of connecting and in a way I was trying to take my whole year of experience going to all these different open source conferences and you know like condense it down into two and a half days. So you really felt like all of these other conferences presented ideas but OSCON was one place where a lot of the most important ones should be showcased. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of I mean there's a lot of really incredible conferences out there and but just for the sake of sanity they do tend to focus and that's good, you know, I go to PyCon, I go to DevCon. But at least when I was running the program for for OSCON couldn't so we couldn't afford to do 3 solid days of Python, but to try to do like you know, a half day that that really captures most important activity over the past year for all the major open source projects, representing the whole constellation. So do you think OSCON would be a good conference for somebody who is getting involved in open source and wants to find a place where people from across lots of different communities get together? Is that a good place for them to go if they could maybe just pick one during the year? Yeah. I would say that is good. It is, it's a little bit more pricey. I think if someone is just beginning to be curious, I would recommend something like Linux Fest Northwest, or there's a Spokane Linux Fest, there's an Ohio Linux Fest. So you might actually try it for like a local regional conference just to get, you know, get started and get the taste. I've been to Ohio Linux Fest before, and I bet that's quite a bit different than OSCON. Yeah, it is. I, I would. I get. I haven't been to Ohio Linux Fest, but I would say it's more like FOSDEM, but much, much smaller, which is nice because you know FOSDEM can be kind of overwhelming for a first timer. I think it's at FOSDEM it's easy to wander in and never actually have a conversation with anyone who's working on the same stuff as you. There's probably like 50 people there who are working on the same stuff as you, but you just may not meet them because it's so big. Um, whereas if you already know people, it's like a nonstop stream of catching up with everyone you know, all the different projects. Um, whereas a Linux Fest is actually a really great way to get started because you'll have people there who they're just, you know, it's small, it's local, you know, you're likely to meet people that you'll see again in multiple months and years ahead. So it's kind of a good way to get pulled into the community. For people that are wondering what that acronym is, I believe FOSDEM is the Free and Open Source Developers European Meeting. I think so, yeah. And it's a huge conference in Europe each year. Now, I have helped organize some of those smaller type conferences in my local community, such as the Twin Cities Drupal Camp. And I've learned that it can really take a lot of effort. It seems like it can actually be a full-time job running a conference. What was it like as a conference chair of OSCON, was that a full-time job for you or did you volunteer? It was a full-time job for me. And I had staff of people who were also working full-time. I would say in many ways, it was a lot easier than something like Drupal. Uh, the very first conference I ever ran, which is also where I met Randall Schwartz because he was a speaker that we invited, uh, was something called Freaknik in Nashville. 
Um, it's connected to the local Linux user group. It's most of the same people as the local Linux user group. There's the sense of energy that you get in a conference like that that you don't get in a big conference. But there's also a sense of, you know, just trying to juggle all the balls all the time and and not being sure, you know, you may have to jump in at any time to do anything that kind of slips through the cracks when you're working on a conference like that. Whereas with OSCON, I mean, this was people's full-time jobs. Like, I never had to worry about speaker management. We had awesome speaker managers. That was their full-time job. They made sure all the speakers were taken care of and had their travel scheduled and had their slides up and had their, you know, it's like, it just, it just all happened magically. Well, not magically. It's human power. I mean, I guess it's kind of just the general sense of when someone's given the capacity to totally focus on one thing, you know, sometimes that gives them the freedom to do a much more excellent job than if they had to shuffle things. But in another sense, I think, you know, I think when we do volunteer conferences, we have a much stronger engagement. We're not going to volunteer, for one thing, for a conference that we don't care about at all. It's going to we're not going to spend that much of our time and energy unless it's part of one of our core passions, um, you know, a community that we care about. I remember at, at Ohio Linux Fest, it had a very different feel for me than some of the other conferences that I had been to beforehand because I'd been paid by my company to go to big conferences. And when I went to Ohio Linux Fest, it definitely had more of a, like a small community feel. It didn't have all of the fancy trappings that you might find at a big conference that cost $500 to get in. Instead, it was definitely a, a group of volunteers putting something together. They did a great job. Lots of things about it that make it feel more community-oriented and less commercial. Yeah, yeah. That's, I suppose I'm trying to express that I'm, I'm, I'm very much torn because I love small conferences. You know, I go to them and I just feel at home and it's, it's free and it's not just free in the sense of you don't pay to get in, you often don't pay to get in, but it's free in the sense of, of you feel this very open, welcoming, passionate involvement of a small group of people. For OSCON, it was in many cases just their job and they just did their job. But on the other hand, there was this thing that we tried to do with open source and that was to draw companies into the free software world, you know, like very actively targeting them and saying, hey, look, you can come and play here too. You know, I think that movement was, has been totally successful. Like we got companies to come to the table, um, which is great. We got companies to start investing in free and open source software. And I think in a way, one of the things that OSCON has always served, the purpose that OSCON has always served is being a bridge. So it's a place that companies can come and they can kind of big booth and they can like talk to each other at a level that they understand. At the same time, there's a real genuine free and open source software community around OSCON. And so it's not like the old, I don't know, like, Java One conferences or whatever, where it's just like corporations and it's all commercial. It's like, this is where we bring those two communities together. This is where we bring the, the grassroots passion into the room to sit down at the table with the corporations so they can see what they're missing. And it's worked. That, that's, what, that's what really overwhelms me about OSCON is, is it's the place where, you know, Rackspace decided to release OpenStack as, as open source. It, that was their bridge into 
like truly opening up. It's the place that Microsoft has announced multiple initiatives over the years of genuinely engaging with open source. As organizer of that conference, I had the chance to go and talk to folks at Microsoft who were running open source efforts and help them change some things about the way they were doing it. So they were more genuinely engaging in open source. And it's like OSCON has been in this in this position where it's actually had a chance to change the world for the better because it was a bridge between those two worlds. That's great that you got to really think about the larger picture and the strategy of it. And it sounds like you didn't have to be as tied down with the things like setting up Wi-Fi and making sure that there's food and coffee. You got to do more of the interesting, what sort of message do we want to put forward? What are the, the big ideas that we want to highlight? Yeah, very much so. It was, it really was, it was a great experience. Yeah, I look on, look back on it very fondly. And, and I suppose really when you get down to it, like what I do now, open source strategy for HP and as open source advisor at Canonical and, you know, what I do now is, is actually very much an outgrowth of what I was doing then. And the sense like thinking how the open source world fits together, thinking how companies could engage better with communities seeing how the lines all fit together in a big pattern and then occasionally you just kind of pull on a thread. That actually sounds very fascinating to me. I think I might have had some preconceived ideas about conference organizers and you are disrupting all of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, good. I mean, you know, if you think about it, what, what, when you organize a conference, you're setting up an environment for something to happen, right? You know, so it's not just... You know, got to get the sessions on, got to get the food out, got to get the, you know, it's like, and all of those are important. You know, if people don't have good food or good coffee, they're grumpy, they can't listen to the sessions, they, they, you know, don't actually get anything out of the day and for completely silly, trivial reasons, but it like, that's the way human beings are. But, you know, at the end of the day, you want, you, you're bringing people together for a reason and you want them to go away with, you know, for the conferences I'm involved in, it's usually go away with knowledge go away with a deeper sense of connection and go away with ideas for how to change the world for the better. Even if it's as simple as, you know, oh, there's this one bigger bug I really want to fix. So let me go tackle that bug. But just like coming away inspired to, to, to go on to the next round of working on their projects. We've found that you want to set up those places where people can get inspired and you want to keep the barriers to entry low and you want to make sure that those rooms are in a place that's not far away from where the sessions are happening, that the ones where people are coding together and that kind of thing. And there is, I guess, sort of an art to that, to keep people involved, keep them excited. There's yet another large conference called DebConf, which is the Debian Developer Conference, and you've also helped organize that one. How did it compare being an organizer for DebCon versus some of these other conferences like OSCON? Yeah, so in general, I would say DebConf was a lot more similar to the grassroots like Perl conferences or Linux conferences I've been involved in. And it's not really anything at all like OSCON. Uh, but in a sense, it is like OSCON. I mean, it's like every conference that sort of the purpose of it is to bring together people who are contributing to Debian give them a chance 
both to share ideas about what they're working on or what they want to work on or what they wish they could work on or what they don't think is working well, but also a chance to go out and drink beer and bond and make a connection. And it's a chance for new people to get involved. You know, we've, we have people coming every year who maybe they've heard of Debian or they've used it. And then, you know, by the end of the conference, they go away and they're submitting patches or they're working on the video team or they're, you know, just in some way they've, they've kind of become a member of the community. And it, you can do that a lot faster in a face-to-face setting than you might be able to do in IRC. I think I've read that some of the money that goes into the Debian community gets put back into the conference and at DebConf, they'll actually just pay for people that are Debian developers to come to the conference. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, the Debian conference specifically or DebConf specifically, uh, we try to keep expenses very, very, very low and keep a large part of the budget for travel expenses. Anyone who's a Debian developer can submit to be sponsored and it's in the range of like one or 200 people every year that get sponsored to travel. Wow. But, you know, I mean, we host it in universities. We do dorm housing. We do, you know, so we go really far out of our way to keep the costs low so that we can so we can do that. And then there's also a there's kind of a newbies program that's hosted by Debian so that it doesn't come out of the current year's sponsorship money. It's just something that Debian does every year where they they help some newbies get to the conference. And the past few years, we've also done some that were specifically targeted as like minority groups that are uh, sometimes underrepresented at these kinds of tech conferences, just to make sure that we get, well, I mean, just in, in a very active interest of, of increasing diversity and broadening involvement. You know, the more I hear about the Debian community, the more I like it. <laughs> <laughs> When is the next DebConf? Uh, in August. It'll be in Heidelberg, Germany this year. Okay. Yeah, maybe we'll suck you in. You never know. I'm more than willing to be sucked in at this point. I like all of the things that the Debian community does in terms of how they build the software, obviously, how they have their governance structure, how they have programs for new developers. And even when you guys talk about this, because I, I talked to a number of Debian developers a couple weeks ago, you know, they were stressing that, but it's always so much more fun if you can meet in person and meet over a beer and then talk about it and get people involved. And I just, I really like that, uh, that community drive. Yeah, I really like the Debian community. Over the years, it's one of the ones that has held me most strongly. And I think, you know, it's just good people doing good work. I mean, it's interesting. You'll find people from the Debian community all over the place that you wouldn't even necessarily expect. A group of us at Libra Planet went out for drinks um, after the last evening and one person from the FSF commented, oh, look, we're about half OSI and FSF here. And I said, yeah, but we're all Debian developers. So Debian wins. Nice. Well, there you go. I mean, there's a place where those, uh, those boundaries didn't matter. Yeah. How do you keep up with changes in the free software world? You're involved in so many different communities. Um, I just got addicted to drinking from the fire hose at O'Reilly and I've never stopped. I mean, to a certain extent, I, I 
don't necessarily, I like, I don't read every mailing list message of every community that I follow. And I kind of rely on friends that I have in those communities being filters. So even if I didn't read every single mailing list message, I know someone from Debian will mention when, you know, the election for the next Debian project leader is, is going on and I'll make sure to catch that. Or, you know, I'll hear someone talking about some particular thread and I'll go and follow up on that. It's odd. I've, I've, I've almost invented a set of uh, relevance filters for all the projects I'm involved in based on people that I know in all of those projects. Once again, that's fascinating because you're involved in so many different projects and I can see where that would be useful to actually count on human beings to determine the places where you get your information and what's important. So that, that makes a lot of sense. What inspires you to stay involved at such a high level in all of these different communities? I'm really curious. That is sort of at a fundamental level. That's probably part of it. I got bitten by a bug very early on with the concept that free software and open source is changing the world for the better. So I have this kind of meta level of involvement in every project I'm involved in, and that is the sense that you know, so yes, it's about the next bug, it's about the next feature, it's about the next release, it's about it's about continuing to make progress forward, but then also seeing each project in its context in the wider world. OpenStack is really important right now because of that corporate involvement. You know, it's one of the very good examples right now of the next generation of open source. You know, where, where in the earlier generations we were trying to get companies involved. Now we have the companies actively interested in being involved, but we need to build those social structures that allow them to be involved in a way that doesn't dominate the code, that doesn't dominate the direction of the project, but that allows them to be beneficial contributors and also, also beneficiaries of the work that they're doing together with us. It's almost like that, in a sense, the technology is very interesting and, and you know, having a fully open source cloud stack is incredibly important right now in terms of in the same way that Firefox was important as a competitor to IE back in the day and then IE is pretty much dead now. Having an open source competitor in the cloud, hybrid cloud, public cloud space is very important. You know, I kind of see it beyond just the technical impact. It's also the social impact on the world that, that keeps me fascinated and, you know, just coming back to keep sort of figuring out the next move on the chessboard and where things are going to go from here. What is next for you? What are you excited about? Um, a few things. So I'm, I'm, I am really excited about OpenStack and the direction it's heading. I am really excited about seeing companies like Hewlett Packard, but not just Hewlett Packard, that just happens to be the one I work for, engage in a more beneficial way. So it's like, um, it's like I'm applying the principles of open source and free software and a very you know, practical, hands-on, day-to-day, you know, what do we do next kind of way for a business strategy, which is an interesting combination of different pieces are important to me. Um, I'm interested in the OSI. I'm interested in building more social programs. I'm interested in improving the license review process and building better quality licenses over the next 20 years. I'm just going to ask you one more question. 
You're involved in, in so many different groups and organizations and conferences and technologies. I feel like I know a lot of people that are very involved in one particular group. Certainly, my most experience has been in the Drupal community, and I know a lot of people that have been doing Drupal for just many years, but I know other people that also have their communities, their Python communities, or they, they identify with another particular project, and it seems like they don't want to move from one to the other. Sometimes I get the sense that there's a certain feeling of guilt that they have these skills and that they've come to believe that they can't just abandon a project and go on to something new. Have you ever had that as a problem where you're working on something and then you kind of want to go try something else, but you feel like, oh, I really have to do this? I really have to, as you said earlier, and as Eric Raymond talks about, I think, in the cathedral and the bazaar, you have to pass on the torch to somebody else and then you can move on to the next thing? Or sometimes do you just say, I have to, I got to move on to the next thing because I'm ready for it? I suppose I've never had a, a time where I was dropping one thing in order to explicitly move on to a second thing. It's more that I would just sort of add another thing as a side interest. Perl 6 is my major thing, and I'm working on a compiler for Perl 6. And you know, so that the compiler for Perl 6 developed separately. And then I get interested in the Python implementation of the compiler, or the Python, you know, the implementation of Python on the compiler. And then, like, from there, I got interested in the Python community. I have known people who do the, you know, I'm a Perl developer, and then they go, no, I'm a Python developer. And I never had a conversion experience. I just kind of had a, well, these are both really interesting <laughs> experience. And then kind of moved on from there. Maybe, I don't know, I, I suppose, I suspect that it's probably very rare to be on the board of the Perl Foundation and the Python Software Foundation at the same time. I, I don't know anybody who's ever done that before. <laughs> <laughs> to more directly answer your question, there was a time when I was working very, very hard on Parrot. I was beginning to feel burned out. And I started to realize that it was time for me to go. And I did uh, consciously train some replacements. I mean, I tend to just keep some replacements in my back pocket all the time. I think that's, I think that mentoring people is just some, a responsibility of everyone who has any kind of involvement in any project. But I think with Parrot and with Perl 6, I probably still have a sense of uh, guilt in a way that, that I didn't necessarily hand things off or leave things as finished as I would have liked. You know, at this point, I would say I'm not really involved in Pro 6. I'm not really involved in Parrot at all. I, at the same time, I was thrilled to hear Larry at Fostem, Larry Wall at Fostem this year, saying that um, they plan to release Pro 6 this year. You know, I still have a feeling of, not, not ownership, but a feeling of, hey, I was involved with that. That's great. And I think that's the best thing to take away as you change over time. Because, you know, life does change over time for all kinds of reasons. You know, you might get involved in a very busy job, which it certainly happened to me. Uh, you might have kids. You might, you know, decide to go back and get your PhD. You might, you know, there's all sorts of reasons where you might have to step away from a project. And I think 
sticking it out and and trying to go through a grueling process of no, no, I can't leave because at one point I was very active in this is not good for you. And it's I think it's really not good for the project either. I think the right way to look at it is be a resource whenever you can, whenever you can offer people experience of what happened in the past. But mostly just hold on to that was a really good experience. That was a really good community. I am so glad that I was involved for that period of time. And, you know, maybe my life has moved on to other things now, but it's the positive memories that you need to hold on to. Not don't don't let the guilt get to you. Allison, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a really good conversation. And thank you for listening. I hope you join me next month when my guest will be Holly Ross, the executive director of the Drupal Association. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hacking Culture. You can learn more about this show and subscribe at lullabot.com slash hackingculture. Please follow at Hacking Culture and at Matthew Tift on Twitter or mtift on microcast. You can also contact Matthew via email at hackingculture at lullabot.com. This episode is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. Hacking Culture is produced at Lullabot. The theme music is from the Open Goldberg Variations. Thank you for listening. I was just going to say that, uh, I don't remember what I was going to say. <laughs>